Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. I start today's program with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. There can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet, and that they who take such an appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. Without losers' consent in an election, democracy cannot function, writes Jonathan Friedland, a very good name, in the Guardian newspaper. The world's most powerful democracy is losing the reflexes and habits that make democracy possible, and, as in all the most terrifying horror movies, the threat is coming from within the house. Friedland wrote. And, Friedland wrote, if we cannot first agree that the house is on fire, we can't begin to talk about putting out the flames. Quote, unquote. 160 years ago, the Democrats fought to preserve slavery. Now they struggle to preserve democracy. Republicans are also guilty of flip-flop, having striven to preserve the Union from becoming, in Lincoln's words, a house divided, now seek to demolish democratic governance. It is quite often forgotten that the Nazis came to power in Germany through the ballot box in 1933. It is more than likely that the USA is once more convulsed with the prospect of revolution combined with civil war. Human history is warped with civil wars and revolutions over centuries and millennia. Of aristocrats rebelling against absolute power of emperors, kings, and dictators. Of so-called bourgeoisie against kings and aristocrats. And more recently, at least in terms of success, worldwide people's revolutionary movements, some liberating, others reprehensible or wretched. The much-touted American revolt against colonial tyranny by its Yankee Doodle ancestors has been warping incessantly toward corporate imperialism, illuminated a century ago by the immortal silent film, Metropolis. And now, by Matt By, Cancel Election Night. I once looked forward to election nights the way normal people look forward to the Super Bowl. I can flip through the chapters of my life by remembering the newsrooms and ballrooms I spent them in, the cold pizza consumed, the politicians I visited in various states of euphoria or despair. But election night no longer exists. It is an echo of the past. And if the news media really wanted to keep the country from spinning apart, we would squash the whole concept under our collective heel and start again. The chatty anchors, the magic election boards, the precinct tallies, all of that belonged to a world where results, even in close races, were more or less instantaneous. In 2004, I stood in the Ohio headquarters of a Democrat 
get out the vote operation and watch the presidential election slip away from John F. Kerry in a matter of minutes, one county at a time. That world blew up in 2020, however, when the pandemic forced a vast expansion in mail-in voting. Now what you're watching on election night is kind of meaningless and misleading. Sure, all of the anchors and pundits will say the correct things about how we are not really going to know the results for days or even weeks, but everything they show you belies those warnings. All the familiar maps and numbers, the silly slogans like America Decides 2022 or whatever, will further the impression of results taking shape by the minute when really all you're seeing is an initial wave. The crawl at the bottom of the screen tells you what percentage of precincts have reported their results, which used to mean something but means very little now unless you know exactly how many votes were mailed in and from where. It will feel as though you're watching a taut two-hour thriller when really it's more like a limited series playing out over several installments. This would at least be entertaining if it weren't so harmful. As an industry, we have spent a ton of time blaming Republicans for sowing distrust in the electoral system, and rightfully so. But the news media has never owned our own role in botching the 2020 election night by making it sound as though Donald Trump was piling up leads all over the place when we always knew that most of the mail-in votes were going to come from Democrats and be counted later. No wonder so many Trump voters found it easy to accept the fiction that the election was stolen. One minute they seemed to be winning big, and then all of a sudden they were not. Trump's bogus conspiracy theory seemed to confirm what they had seen with their own eyes. So here we go again. Another televised extravaganza, more colorful maps, another wave of election results that won't actually tell you who is winning. One way or the other, a lot of voters are going to end up feeling cheated. And they are being cheated, not by the election machinery, but by TV networks that cling to the outdated convention of a single election night. After Tuesday night, we should rethink and reinvent the way we report results before the public completely loses its faith in the system. Let's cancel this phony biennial election show. I will miss the fun and finality of a good election night as much as anyone, but I would miss a functioning democracy even more. And that was Cancel Election Night by Matt Pye, who wrote it for the Washington Post. And now, by the late Dr. Robert Drake, formerly of Ocean Park, Washington, The Downward Slide of American Politics. When Americans think about politics today, their first thought is that it is inherently dirty and undignified, that most politicians are corrupt and unprincipled, convincingly evidenced by the Trump crime family of sycophants and cabinet members, and that those currently involved in politics only care about their self-interest and not at all about the welfare of our country, and that it takes no special skills to be a politician. In fact, the less experienced, the better. 
Far too many Americans currently believe that since the problems we face as a nation are simple and the solutions obvious, either stupidity or malice must explain why the solutions have not been implemented yet. We are at a low ebb in the history of modern American politics, a period when politics is trivial and dehumanizing, when large challenges are ignored or made worse, and when politics is an area for invective. Across the board, the political leadership in both parties ranges from mediocre to dismal. Republicans and Democrats have contempt for each other and cannot work together to solve common problems like immigration, justice for all, climate change, our crumbling infrastructure, and minority bashing. So what can we do about the collapse of trust in government amidst a creeping hopelessness? First, we the people are complicit in this sad state of affairs also. In a self-governing nation, we generally get the government we deserve. The people we elect to serve in public office have not been installed by some hostile alien force. It is us ordinary Americans in congressional districts, in states, and in the nation as a whole who elect House members, senators, governors, mayors, and presidents. It is all too easy for us to point the finger at others and never at ourselves, and to assume that the troubles plaguing American politics have everything to do with other people and nothing to do with us. So we quickly and sometimes mercilessly condemn what we consider to be a very unattractive garden, politics, without giving a moment's thought to the role of those tasked with planting the garden's flowers voters. Yet, here is the important point we should seize upon now. We are not in the grip of forces we cannot control. We can reverse what has gone wrong by building on what has gone right. The wrong way to think about politics today is that we are collectively afflicted by an uncurable terminal disease. The better way to think about politics is that we are out of shape, the result of doing a lot of things wrong over the years. Shedding pounds and building muscle may be difficult, but it can be done, and we know how to do it. It is a matter of summoning the requisite will, energy, and commitment. The task before us is not easy, but it's hardly beyond us. If we demand more of our politicians by demanding more of ourselves, our politics will get better, and so will our country. That requires us, person by person, to assume the mantle of citizenship. Even though politicians who should know better may continue to act in maddeningly hypocritical ways, our politics is not only salvageable, but a potential source of renewal and recovery for the country. The political arena is full of people who love their country and want to serve it. Of course, they are also ambitious and eager to advance, sometimes putting their ideals in tension with personal ambitions. But it need not be that way. Part of what a revival of politics would involve is a better alignment of the incentives our politicians face 
with the potential of politics to elevate our national life. So only a change of attitude among the broader public can bring about such a revival. Citizens who demand more will yield politicians who offer more. By remembering and restoring America's noble political tradition, covering the roles of morality, rhetoric, debate, and citizenship, we can, together, heal what has been so severely fractured and get back to the task of making America a more perfect union and truly great again. And that was, by the way, Dr. Robert Brake, formerly from Ocean Park, Washington, the downward slides of American politics. And now, in honor of Armistice Day, something written by Rick Rubin quite a while back, and I've read it on the air a few times, as well as published it in my newspaper. Veterans of America, I salute you. Annually, on November 11th, it is our duty as patriotic citizens to honor American veterans of all our wars. The brave men and women, whether clerk typists in Korea or expert infantrymen in Kansas, who have actually or potentially defended our American way of life. Personally, I feel this day is one of the most significant of our American holidays, and each year I try to pause and remember one or more specific groups of veterans. I say specific because there are more than 25 million veterans in the country who, together with their immediate families, make up two-fifths of the population. You can't salute them all at once. A person needs something more concrete. For example, one group I delight in honoring is the veterans of the 25th U.S. Infantry Regiment, colored, six of whom had won the Medal of Honor in the Philippines. On August 3rd of that year, a dozen or so members of this organization, angered by the treatment they had received from the white citizens of nearby Brownsville, Texas, made what has been described, by white people at least, as a shooting sortie into the town, killing one citizen. Whether any man of the 25th Regiment had ever been killed by the citizens of Brownsville, I can't say but I am reasonably certain that no one had ever been convicted of doing so. The soldiers returned to their post unobserved, and during the subsequent official investigation, not one of the 160 men of the three colored, quote-unquote, companies would inform on his fellow soldiers. On November 5th, President Theodore Roosevelt discharged without honor every man of the three companies, observing that if no one admitted guilt, all of them would have to pay the penalty. The discharge without honor meant all persons and payments were forfeited, including those of the six Medal of Honor winners, and none of the men was ever reinstated or given a pension. And so, each year, I salute the veterans of Brownsville. Would it seem so unsophisticated if I salute the first Americans to die under Hitler's bullets? 
to be blown to heroes' graves by Mussolini's airplanes. American veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade of the Spanish Civil War, I salute you on Veterans Day. I salute those other unlucky veterans, communists and socialists, German-American Bundists, the homosexuals and psychotics, and other disreputable types who were drafted into the army in time of war and were then, though not actually convicted of any crime, discharged under circumstances less than honorable to hunt for jobs as best they knew how. I salute the veterans of Coxey's Army, who in 1894 marched on Washington, D.C., to petition for relief legislation and bonuses for veterans, but were instead rushed by guards, shot and injured, and saw their leaders arrested for the crime of trampling on the grass. And I do not forget to honor the World War I Veterans Bonus Army Marchers of 1932. Several policemen were injured while evicting them from vacant government buildings where they were living and in the process killed two of their number. The army was called in by President Hoover and led by General Douglas MacArthur, advanced in full battle dress with machine guns, tanks, tear gas, drawn sabers, and fixed bayonets. General MacArthur observed the marchers were, quote, animated by the essence of revolution, unquote, and further commented that if President Hoover had let it go another week, I believe the institutions of our government would have been severely threatened, unquote. So to be fair, I salute not only the Bonus Army of 1932, but also the soldiers who attacked them and subsequently became veterans themselves. And further, I salute veteran General MacArthur. I salute the Negro combat troops of World War I who served with French divisions overseas so as not to cause trouble and won many citations for bravery under fire, perhaps the only veterans of our history who not only had to learn foreign weapons and foreign military organization, but even a foreign language just to serve their own army in time of war. And I further salute some who returned from World War I and were among the 70 Negroes, several still in uniform, who were lynched during the first post-war year. Even if they had learned uppity ways from those alien Frenchmen, they were American veterans nonetheless. Of course, the first veterans I hail each year are my own comrades in arms of the Korean police action, who, if they were less than totally successful as soldiers, were less successful still at draft dodging, although many, no doubt, now march in the parades of November 11th. Then I move on to the other defenders of the American dream, the Nisi members of the 442nd Infantry Regiment and the 100th Battalion, who voluntarily joined the Army out of concentration camps across California, Idaho, and Utah, won five distinguished unit citations with the 5th Army in Italy and the 7th Army in the Rhineland, and are said to be the most decorated regiment combat team in American history. 
Then they returned home to such places as Hood River, Oregon, to find the American Legion did not want a bunch of lousy Japs repossessing their lawful homes and farms. The government they had served voluntarily and well was prepared to pay depreciated 1945 prices for their cars, equipment, and other possessions confiscated in 1942. I salute the American legionnaires who castrated, hanged, then shot, full of holes, one Wesley Everest from a railroad bridge near Centralia, Washington, on Armistice Day, 1919, and thereby defended the American way of life against the eight-hour day and other such foreign-inspired wobbly IWW demands. I salute sharp-eyed American legionnaire Homer Shalio, who reviewed a legion pamphlet titled Americanism, What Is It? Legionnaire Shalio found the pamphlet contained too much emphasis on freedom of speech and too little on the fundamentals of religion. In addition, the paper was made in Japan, and the American eagle on the cover was printed in red. He forced the pamphlet, clearly un-American, to be withdrawn. I salute the military order of the World War, a group of former World War I officers who, in their national bulletin, reported that the American Civil Liberties Union actually, quote, believes in rampant free speech, unquote. I salute as well a man who, as colonel, shared with Ethan Allen leadership of the expedition that captured Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, who later that year led the capture of the fort at St. John's, and in 1776 almost captured Quebec, who attacked the British on Lake Champlain with a fleet of leaky small boats, and in 1777 repulsed an attempted invasion of Connecticut, who was wounded in the thick of fighting at Saratoga while leading his troops to victory, who commanded Philadelphia in 1776, West Point in 1780, and went on to become one of America's best-known veterans. Colonel Benedict Arnold, I salute you. I hail Private Edward Donald Slovic, called Eddie one of thousands of American soldiers convicted of deserting in the face of the enemy during World War II, but the only one since 1864 to be executed for doing so. On January 31, 1945, he was shot to death by a firing squad and rushed into veterandom. I salute Colonel Charles R. Forbes, commander of the Veterans Bureau under President Warren Harding, who, after Harding's death, was found to have operated a gigantic swindle which milked the Bureau of more than $200 million in less than two years, at a time when disabled veterans in hospitals lacked bandages, bedding, and drugs. Colonel Forbes condemned carloads of these items and sold them off at a fraction of their cost. I salute, too, the veterans of U.S. military actions other than declared wars. Hawaii, 1893, China, 1900, Panama, 1903, 
Dominican Republic, 1904, Nicaragua, 1911, Mexico, 1914, Haiti, 1915, Mexico, 1916, Dominican Republic, 1916, who got just as dead, wounded, just as painfully, but by some oversight got no GI Bill, no homecoming parade, no veteran special bonuses, or even so much as a casualty statistic in the world almanac. I salute the men who fought to destroy the dictatorship in Cuba, the anti-Batista fighters, now no more able to get a good job than those earlier anti-fascists, the men of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I salute the Bay of Pigs invaders who, if they weren't either Americans or in the American Army, at least took our pay and did our work, however unsuccessfully. I salute the former officers and men of the Revolutionary War who participated in Captain Daniel Shea's Rebellion of 1786, an attempt to overthrow the government of Massachusetts. I salute the members of an alleged special group that is supposed to have spent World War II high up in Colorado, having been adjudged by the Army as too subversive to be of any use, but not subversive enough to kill or kick out or not draft in the first place. I salute veterans of the Revolution who knew it was right and proper for a people to throw off the shackles of an unjust government. And I salute the men of the Union Army in the Civil War who knew that it was wrong and unlawful for a people to throw off the shackles of an unjust government. I salute American veterans who invaded Latin American countries to protect them from outside intervention, then invaded again to intervene on behalf of American property rights. In fact, I stand ready to salute any group or individual veteran who fits my peculiarly warped view of defenders of the American dream. I salute those first Americans to die for their country, the American Indians. I salute those pilgrims, Puritans, and Protestants who killed them and were killed by them, and thus became the second Americans to die for their country. I salute the soldiers, sailors, and airmen, and women in Vietnam who died for some country. I am not quite sure whose. Nor do I slight the American boys in the Congo, in Korea, in Formosa, Spain, and Morocco, nor the military advisory groups in dozens or perhaps even hundreds of other countries, all dying or at least ready to die without benefit of declared war or GI Bill of Rights in defense of freedom and the local USIS library. Veterans of America, myself included, I salute you. And that was Veterans of America, I salute you. Bye. Rick Rubin, who was a Portland artist and writer. This article was among the best of the realist printed by Running Press of Philadelphia and was originally published in Realist 71, November 1966. He died in 2014 at age 83. He was a good friend of mine for many years. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk engineers this program. Today, November 10th, is Gomer Pyle's birthday. 
247, same age as Yankee Doodle, born in a Boston tavern, according to legend. USMC, Uncle Sam's misguided children, leathernecks, jarheads, seagoing bellhops, first to go, last to know, gung-ho, Semper Fi. The Vietnam War dead wall was dedicated 40 years ago on Armistice Day 1982. Another wall should surround it, all Vietnamese dead, north and south, Viet Cong, Saigon Arvin, certainly all slaughtered civilians shot or napalmed in their homes and villages, no matter who killed them. And it might be a sensible idea, especially with the latest threat of nuclear holocaust, to revive the post-World War I tradition of stopping everything for a minute of silence at the 11th hour of the 11th day of November when armistice began.